بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله Alhamdulillah, we are here again for our Ask the Imam program for the month of August. And unlike last month where we took several questions, tonight we're only taking four. And the reason why we're only taking four is because one of them is quite detailed. And I kind of like to use this space for Ask the Imam to answer certain questions in a lot of detail so that when people ask those questions again, I can refer them back to the videos. They can go back and watch the recordings and have a very detailed answer to something that gets asked from time to time. So the first question, questioner says, Assalamu alaikum, may you be rewarded many times over for taking time, the time to educate us. Can you please recommend the most reliable English translation of the Holy Quran? Preferably a book that I can hold in my hands as opposed to an app. So, sounds like an easy question, doesn't it? What's the most reliable translation of the Qur'an? But that question is much tougher than it sounds. Because translation is essentially interpretation. And there's a couple of points I want to make before I try to answer this question and give some recommendations because I'm not going to recommend just one translation, but a few. So the first point is what I just said, that all translation is interpretation. It is tafsir. So the more qualified the translator is, the more knowledgeable they are about the sciences of the Qur'an and the principles of tafsir, the more likely the translated text will be accurate. The less they know of the Arabic language and its sciences and the ulum al-Qur'an, the sciences of the Qur'an and the sciences of tafsir and the foundations of tafsir, the less likely the translation will be accurate. So if a person is skilled and they have all of the requisite tools for translating the Qur'an, their text will hopefully reflect meanings that are supported by the classical tafsir. Now pay very close attention to the way I word this. If they are skilled, their translation will reflect meanings found within the classical tafsir. I am not saying that those translations will reflect the meanings of the Qur'an. Meanings, yes, but not the meanings in an encompassing sense. And the reason why I say that is because as someone who has been translating, alhamdulillah, for over 20 years, translation is all about making choices. Choosing the best way to render a text from its original language to its target language. And when you make choices, 
you are by definition including some things and excluding other things. And when you come to the text like the Quran, the book of Allah, you understand this is a, a metaphorical ocean that has no shore. Bahrun la sahila lahu. So when you translate, you're going to lose, of course, some of the possible meanings, some of the possible layers of meanings that are within the Arabic text of the Quran. And this is very clear when you translate, because sometimes a scholar, for instance, will cite a verse that carries a certain meaning that they're getting at, but if you go to a translation of the verse from an, some other source, you find that the translation doesn't really fit with the flavor or the kind of istidlal, the inference that they're making. So you have to change things up a bit so that it reflects the meaning that they're drawing from the Qur'an that is supported in the Arabic language and supported in the tafasir, right? So the only way a translator can mitigate this problem is to translate the text in as clear as a way as possible, selecting a particular tafsir or a selection of tafsir, putting it in the translation while also offering some footnotes. And those footnotes become like elaborations on the other possible layers of meaning contained within the text. Right? So this is the first point. The second point is that there is no best translation of the Qur'an in English. There is none. Because each translation of the Qur'an that we have available in the English language has its positives and has its negatives. And I don't mean negatives always in a bad way. It just has certain things that it lacks owing to the nature of translation and the limitation of one language representing some of the meanings within the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there is no one single best translation. Uh, what we find often with these translations is that if the translator is very skilled, they're very educated in the sciences of Arabic and the sciences of tafsir, their tafsir, their translation, which is a tafsir, may be very accurate, but it might suffer in its English eloquence. The English may not be that good. On the other hand, you may find translations of the Qur'an that are very beautiful in the English language, but they're not as accurate as other translations. So ideally, we want to find a translation of the Qur'an that is both accurate, that has explanatory footnotes when needed, and is also beautiful and it sounds good in the English language. It's a very tall order. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to do. So I don't suggest that there's a best translation or even one that is the most accurate. But I will suggest a few that any student of the Qur'an who, has, who is still on their journey in learning Arabic, they can consult. Um, so in, in no particular order, I would mention these translations. Number one, the meaning of the Holy Qur'an by Abdullah Yusuf Ali. 
You find this translation in virtually every masjid in North America. It's one of the oldest ones in almost every new Muslim back in the 90s, back in my day, were, were given this big, huge, massive translation. And the reason why it's so large is that Abdullah Yusuf Ali had a lot of footnotes, a lot of appendices, a lot of things like that that added. And then when you have the Arabic side by side with the English, it becomes a very large book. And it was later edited somewhat uh, by Amana Publications, and it became somewhat smaller, but it was still a very large book. It's a very good one, uh, even though there are some errors. And it's a very Shakespearean style of English. Not everyone likes that. Uh, those who are not uh, accustomed to that level of English may not like it. But for those who grew up hearing and appreciating the beauty of Shakespearean English, as seen in the King James Version of the Bible, for instance, they appreciate that because it's still, for them at least, it evokes that sense of something high and sacred and very eloquent in the English language. It's a very high level of English. That's one I would recommend. It's not for everyone, though, and it still has some errors. Another one is the Qur'an. That's what it's called. The Qur'an by M.A.S. Abdul Halim. And this is a personal favorite. The English is very fluid. It's very crisp. The downside is that it does not have any commentary. So it's accurate, and it's even beautiful, but it doesn't have commentary. So... This leaves readers wondering about the meanings of certain verses. Another translation is the Clear Qur'an by Mustafa Khattab. This has become, for me at least, my go-to translation. Uh, not for personal use, but it's my go-to translation for when uh, someone takes shahada and they become a Muslim. Or if someone comes and asks about a translation, uh, and they want to read for their own personal growth. It's the go-to translation I give them. Uh, and the reason why is because it is clear, the English is clear, the translation is very accurate. Uh, I check certain verses to see how accurate, because I notice a lot of the translations get certain verses translated incorrectly because of mm, their lack of depth. But this one gets it right. Uh, in addition... This uh, translation has a very nice introduction before each chapter, and it has sections that divides each part of the, the chapter by theme. So you can trace the themes of the chapter as you go through it. And this, this is very helpful, and it has some useful footnotes as well. So this has become my go-to translation. Uh, the only downside, in my opinion, and it's not to critique the translator, he did an excellent job, my, my only criticism is that uh, I think the English could be, how can you say this? I want to say this respectfully because I'm not, I'm not uh, knocking him. I want to say that the English can be perhaps a little more refined in some parts. That's all. So that's just from a stylistic perspective. And that's, of course, you have your own personal preference. So... I would tell most people, start with this. This is a very easy uh, translation to read. It has clarity in language, and it has accuracy, and it has footnotes, enough to where 
You don't get bogged down in the footnotes, but they're enough to help you as you navigate through the translation. This is probably my go-to recommendation. Uh, other translations that are worth mentioning, I'll mention two more. Uh, one of them is called the Qur'an, a new translation. And this is by the late Thomas Cleary. Uh, he passed away um, like a year or two ago. He was a prolific translator. He was one of the translators of Sun Tzu's The Art of War. He was fluent in Chinese and so many other languages. He was a genius. And he translated this maybe 20 or so years ago. This is, in my opinion, one of the more elegant translations in English. It doesn't have footnotes, it doesn't have commentary, it's just a plain translation, but it's very elegant. And it is accurate for the most part, minus a few, I could say, colorful translation choices that aren't wrong, but they're just interesting choices. And I'll leave it at that. But it's a good book. Um, the only problem is it's very hard to get now. I think it's been out of print for a while. So if you find it, it will probably be used on eBay or something. I don't know if it's on Amazon. And if it is, it may be very costly because it's out of print. The last one that I should mention is called the Study Quran. The Study Quran is, it stands out from every other translation that I've ever seen because it is a translation as well as a detailed commentary on the Quran done by a team of translators supervised by Dr. Sayyid Hussein Nasr. This was done a few years back and it is a translation of the Quran and for every single verse they present uh, an overview of what has been mentioned in the various tafasir. So imagine if you were translating a single verse, and for that verse you consulted uh, tafsir al-Tabari, Ibn Kathir, al-Qurtubi, al-Razi, Ibn Ashur, Kashani, and others. And you boiled the essence of what they said down into the footnotes. That, that's valuable, that's useful. I wish I could recommend this translation, but I can't. And the reason why I can't is because although it was a massive effort upon scrutiny by different scholars, it's discovered that there's very fundamental flaws and errors, even very basic ones, in the translation of the Quranic text, where nouns somehow get translated as verbs, where prepositions are mistranslated, very simple stuff. This should not happen if someone is, is qualified. Uh, basic errors in fiqh, uh, basic misrepresentation of the positions of the different schools, uh, simple mistakes too. Uh, and, but what makes all of that uh, minor is that in addition to all of the things they added, they also injected uh, perennialism into the text. Now, perennialism. Uh, with a capital P, not to be confused for the flower that grows every year, perennials. Uh, perennialism is a certain philosophy that uh, believes uh, in the transcendent unity of religions. Basically, all religions are true. They're all like different paths to the same summit, and that they all have uh, salvific, salvific uh, qualities. You can be saved as long as you follow any of the 
revealed religions. Uh, and this is based on a certain philosophy that they have from their teachers that they received, and this is completely outside of Islam. And it's, it, for this reason, it can't be recommended because they injected some of that within the tafsir of certain verses, particularly the verses that mention uh, the Jews and the Christians and things like that. So I wish I could recommend it, but I can't. However, the reason why I bring it up here is because if someone has studied Arabic, they have studied the sciences of the religion, they know their aqidah properly, they know their deen, and they have some background study, they may be able to use it to consult it, uh, being able to filter those things out. There's still some value, I believe, for specialists or, or imams to just have that book as a reference, knowing beforehand that it has certain problems. So, to summarize this answer, I think you can't go wrong with this translation. This one, or M.A.S. Abdul Hadim, I think are probably the best two to go to. Uh, this one is accessible, is good for non-Muslims. This one doesn't have any Arabic. Uh, you can get the one with the Arabic. Uh, the M.A.S. Abdul Hadim is good because of the, the, the lucidity in the language and its beauty. This one for its utility. I think you can use those two and they'll take you very far, inshallah ta'ala. All right. Next question. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa was the last prophet for the people before him and the people before the Quran. How would they enter Jannah? How would they pray? What would they pray towards? So we see here that this is actually three questions wrapped into one. The question about how would they pray? What direction would they face in prayer? But before those two questions comes the most important one in this question, which is how would they enter Jannah? So we're going to tackle that one because the other two are really minor in comparison. This is a very detailed theological issue. And the ulama of theology have expended a lot of ink writing about this issue. And without wanting to go into all of the details concerning that, we just want to look at the, the, the basics of the issue. And now I presume the questioner is referring to people we call Ahlul Fatra. Ahlul Fatra are the people in the gap. The people in that space of time between Sayyiduna Isa ibn Maryam السلام, and the Prophet Muhammad a space of some 500 years, give or take. These are the Ahlul Fatra, the people of the gap. They are between these two great messengers of Ulul Azm, of great resolve. What is the ruling on these people? They lived in these hundreds of years. No messenger was alive. There was no messenger among humanity. And then the Prophet ﷺ appeared with the universal message of Islam and that spread. What is the ruling on those people in the hereafter? What's going to happen to them? Because they didn't receive the message. So this is a very detailed issue, as I said. But we want to operate on principles. Because the principles help you understand the particulars. Principle number one, 
is a principle we should always keep in mind no matter what is going on in the world. Allah Ta'ala does not wrong anyone. Allah Ta'ala does not wrong anyone. And Allah mentions this repeatedly in the Quran. وَلَا يَظْلِمُ رَبُّكَ أَحَدًا Your Lord wrongs no one. That's number one. Number two, Allah Ta'ala affirms in the Quran, وَمَا كُنَّا مُعَذِّبِينَ حَتَّى نَبْعَثَ رَسُولًا He says in the Quran that we do not punish a people until we send to them a messenger. And this is a Quranic principle, that punishment is only for people who have received the message and made the choice to reject it after they have received that message. So those people who have received the message, this is between them and Allah, whether they accept it or reject it. This question, I presume, is about those people in that in-between space between the times of these two prophets. And there are a variety of opinions among the scholars about the ultimate fate of such people. The general position among the majority of the ulama is that the Ahlul Fatra receive a kind of amnesty, if you will. How is that amnesty received? Allahu A'lam. Are they tested in the hereafter? There are some narrations that mention this. But they receive a general amnesty. And we have this mentioned in the tafasir, in the works of Imam ibn Jarir al-Tabari and Imam ibn Abi Hatim in their commentaries on the Qur'an. We have them quoting Qatada, who says regarding that verse, that we do not punish a people until a messenger has been sent. They said, Allah Ta'ala will not punish anyone until news from Allah reaches him or until a proof from Allah reaches him. And here they say that proof means Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. If we look at this verse, we understand that people don't just go to hell uh, unless the messenger has been established, the proof has been established, and they willingly choose to take that path of disbelief. And they stay upon their uh, rejection. This is out of obstinance, out of arrogance, and so on. Now an issue comes up here. We have certain hadith which speak about people who were in that time period between the messengers who, despite being in that time period, we have certain hadith telling us that they will go to hell. You know, this one and that one, right? People who were not alive to witness and hear either the message of Sayyidina Isa or Sayyidina Rasulullah. So, certain hadith say that these people go to hell. So, how do we reconcile that with the verse of the Quran which says that no one will be punished until a messenger is sent to them? The ulama mentioned a few different ways that can be reconciled. Because ideally you want to reconcile the hadith with the verse, if possible. So one of the approaches of the scholars has been to say, the verse of the Qur'an that says that people will not be punished until a messenger is sent, is qat'i, it is decisive, it is definitive, it is clear-cut. 
Whereas the hadith narrations which mention this one or that one going to hell are a hadithu ahad. These are uh, hadith from singular routes of transmission, unlike uh, mutawatir mass transmitted narrations. So they say, according to this first view, if you have a hadith that is ahad, singular route of transmission, the hadith, even if we say it's sahih, yeah, it only gives you uh, speculative knowledge. Uh, and when you have the qat'i and the dhanni paired, you have to give preference to the qat'i, to what's definitive over what is not definitive. So they just give preference to the verse and say that ultimately the verse is what decides everything. It's definitive in that people are not punished until a messenger is sent. The other view is to say that the general amnesty is true and that people are not punished until a messenger is sent and they receive the message and make a choice to reject or accept. However, there are certain specific individuals that are an exception to this and Allah Ta'ala knows best why they are exceptions. That's one view. It's a kind of tawaqqaf, you know. Uh, they accept the, the verse is clear. The hadith are accepted. We just don't know why they are mentioned and how that doesn't apply to everyone else. That's one view. The other view of the ulama is that the punishment mentioned for certain specific individuals is due to them actively misguiding people in their communities. Not just them having a false belief, but going out of their way to spread that belief and fight for that belief and establish it among their people and spread it and introduce it and argue on behalf of it. And some of the scholars say that th those hadith are speaking about those kind of people, not the person who is confused and following their forefathers and just going along with things and they haven't received the message. Um, and of course, this is just one view, by the way. There's other views. Right. Imam Abu al-Mansur al-Maturidi rahimahullah, he said that the, the aql is sufficient, the human intellect is sufficient to arrive at an understanding that Allah Ta'ala exists and only He deserves to be worshipped. So if a person clouds their aql, they cloud their fitrah purposely, there's no excuse, even if they're in a time between messengers. And the way he interprets the verse, وَمَا كُنَّ مُعَذِّبِينَ حَتَّى نَبْعَثَ رَسُولًا In the Maturidi text it mentions Rasula here is indefinite. And here he's, they, they indicate that Rasul here means the, the messenger of one's own intellect and consciousness. That's how they interpret it. So this is just one view. So accordingly, the scholars say that the Ahlul Fatra, the people in, those, in that time period, can be looked at as three types or you could say three categories, those who attained Tawheed, meaning belief in Allah Ta'ala uh, and worshipping Him alone, based on their fitrah and their aql, just observing and having coming to that understanding. right? And those people are saved. Even though no messenger came to them, they're saved because they never fell into shirk in the first place. right? And this applies to many people. Don't, don't think that everybody was just wallowing in shirk. 
No, they were people of Tawheed. They just didn't have Sharia. They didn't have uh, principles of, of how to do ritual acts of worship. And what they had would have been remnants from what had existed from the previous prophets that may have been diluted over time. That's the first category. They're saved. Second category are those people who altered, actively changed the religion of Tawheed that was a part of their people from the centuries before, and they propagated it, and they argued on, uh, in favor of it, and they pushed idol worship. These people will be condemned to hell. That's one view. The other view is that those who did not commit shirk, but they also didn't embrace Tawheed, they spent most of their lives unaware of these things, just went through their life, and they weren't propagating anything, they weren't going out of their way to worship other than Allah, then their faith is decided by Allah Ta'ala, and Allah doesn't wrong anyone. So as Muslims, we don't have a problem with this. You know, if a person is living in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, even today, and we say they're so isolated, they've never heard the message of Islam, what happens to them? Right? As Muslims, you don't have a problem with that issue because we say Allah is not unjust. He is adl, he's just. And therefore, people who haven't received the message, the message will be established upon them. The proof will be established upon them and they will make a choice in the hereafter. And Allah judges them based on that. And we leave the matter to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As for the other part of the question, how did they pray or what direction did they face? Well, it all depends on where they are and, and who they are. They're, you know, in the time between Sayyidina Isa and the Prophet ﷺ, there were people in that region who had the remnants of the way of Prophet Ibrahim right? Even Quraysh had aspects from the Milla of Ibrahim, the Tawaf, some of the rites of Hajj remained unchanged. Some things were swept away because they were corrupted, but not everything, right? So it's very possible that those people had aspects from the rituals that their ancestors received from those prophets of old. Whether it was pristine or diluted, that's another question. But they had remnants of that. So it's very conceivable that they had a certain kind of prayer. And as far as what direction they faced, Allah knows best. Allah knows best. We could presume that people in that region may have face Jerusalem if they're in that region. But what about someone in China? What about someone in the dark forests of Germany in that time? We don't know these things. And all we know is Allah Ta'ala is not unjust. He does not wrong anyone. And the proof will be established on everyone. And Alhamdulillah, Allah Ta'ala knows best. The next question Assalamu alaikum. What is the validity of some, someone saying, Allahu wa Rasuluhu a'lam? I have noticed that you say this. Some argue that this is shirk and one should utter only the following, Allahu a'lam. Now, I first want to start by thanking the questioner for seeking clarity. Because I really can't count how many times I have said something or maybe even done something and someone doesn't ever come to me, 
to ask me about it. Instead, they go to this one and that one talking about it. And then I find out through third parties and sometimes fourth parties. So I appreciate candor. You know, if someone has a question about anything, they feel free to come and ask uh, because that's, we want to operate on basira in everything that we say and do, right? So I appreciate that they asked this question. Uh, before addressing the specific question, I want to address two important points. Point number one, we as Muslims have to have clarity about the meaning of terms like shirk and ibadah. A lot of people use these terms. They, they throw them out, but they don't really understand their definitions. If you use a word to say that this is that, this thing fits into this category, you should, be, you should be able to define what that thing is. If you can't define it in a way that gives clarity, in a way that allows you to distinguish it from what is not it, it will eventually lead you into confusion. Okay? Case in point. The definition of shirk, or the definition of ibadah. Uh, who can define ibadah? And you can't define it just by saying it's worship. That's a translation. How would you define ibadah? Anyone? Okay. So what's ubudiyah? That's not a ta'rif because ibadah, ubudiyah comes from ibadah. So you can't explain it with the same word. That's close. Okay, good. We'll run with that one. An act of submission. Your mother tells you to take out the trash late at night and you submit to her and you take out the trash. Have you worshipped her? You see the problem? The definition of ibadah has to be one that enables you to distinguish ibadah from what is not ibadah. Okay? Another one. Sajda. Is sajda an act of ibadah? Yes, absolutely. So when the brothers of Prophet Yusuf made sajda to Yusuf, were they worshipping him? How come? You see the issue here, right? Uh, yeah, that's correct. But how do you know it's sajda of, of respect? Ah, there you go. It's the intention, isn't it? Right? If you look at a person, I mean, that's forbidden in our sharia, but it was allowed in their sharia to do the sajda of tahiyyah or, or ta'adhim, you know, respect and greeting. It was allowed for them, not allowed for us. If you saw someone doing that, how would you know whether it is like what we read in Surah Yusuf? or what is an act of ibadah. The only way you'd know is if that person expressed the intention behind the action. So the intention uh, definitely factors into it. The person is praying salat by themselves, or in, by themselves in the masjid. And someone walks in and they begin to stand up straighter and look more humbled. They're showing off. Have they worshipped that person 
No. That's why it's called ash-shirk al-asghar, minor shirk. Showing off is minor shirk. It's not major shirk. But how come? Right? So we have to have clarity about that. Because you can't say that something is shirk unless you know what is the meaning of ibadah. And for ibadah, you have to have a clear definition. Well, so what's the definition? There's a lot of definitions, but they all go back to one fundamental definition, which is ibadah is it is the epitome of submissiveness and surrender that based upon one's internal belief that the one to whom they are submitting has the qualities of lordship. Right? If you don't understand that definition, then many things that are not shirk will be considered shirk. Right? So if you say that something is shirk, uh, that means that it is sarful ibadah li ghayrillah. It is you know, taking an act of worship and dedicating it to other than Allah. Right? So that's the first point I want to make. That leads us to the second issue. The second issue is whatever was tawheed in the time of the Prophet ﷺ does not become shirk after he passes away from this dunya. That's the second thing. So now to the specifics of the question. The questioner is saying, is it valid for a person to say now to a question, Allahu wa rasooluhu a'lam, Allah and his messenger know best. That's the question. So linguistically, in the Arabic language, when you say Allahu wa rasooluhu a'lam, Allah and his messenger know best, that statement is a khabar. It's a declarative sentence. It's not insha, you're not, you're not asking for anything. You're just making a statement, a statement of fact. That's number one. So is it a true statement? It's a true statement. It's a true statement. It was certainly true in the time of the Prophet ﷺ when the companions would say it over and over and over again to all sorts of questions, as we'll see. It was a statement of fact back then. It doesn't become a false statement after his passing ﷺ. So that's the first point. Second point. Rationally speaking, it's a true statement. So it can be said during the physical life of the Prophet ﷺ, and we don't need narrations, really, we don't need narrations to prove that it's valid to say after his passing, because it remains a true statement. But we do have narrations, which makes it all the more easier for us. We have narrations from the Sahaba, not just of them saying Allahu wa Rasuluhu a'lam during his lifetime. But we have narrations where the Sahaba are saying among themselves and saying to the second generation, the Tabi'un, the exact same thing. They continued to say it even after the passing of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Allahu wa Rasuluhu a'lam. That's the second point. Third point. What is the context behind the statement of the companions 
when they would say, Allah and His Messenger know best. What was going on? What caused them to say that? When you look at the narrations, uh, most of them are in response to questions. Most of them are in response to questions they didn't know the answer to. So they would reply, Allah and His Messenger know best. It was something about Islamic knowledge, right? Ahkam and things like that. So I ask you, we'll go to a fiqh issue. We know, we know in the Hanafi and Hanbali schools, you pray your hands below the navel, correct? And in the Shafi'i school, and in one position in the Madiki school, above the navel, okay? So if I ask you, which of these two is superior? Can you say Allah and His Messenger know best? Does Allah and His Messenger know best about which of the two is superior or equal? Of course, because it concerns matters of Sharia revealed to the Prophet. So that's a statement of, of fact pertaining to matters of Sharia. So that's number three. Number four, a person might argue well, we're not saying that it is major shirk. To say Allah and His Messenger know best if you say it now after His passing. But we say that it is minor shirk because we have a hadith in which the Prophet heard someone say, Ma sha Allahu wa shi'ta. It is as Allah has, Allah and you have willed. And the Prophet disapproved of this kind of statement. And he says, have you taken me as an equal, an equal with Allah? He says, rather say, Ma sha Allah, thumma shi'ta. Say, it is as Allah has willed, and then you. You, you put a space, like thumma. So this is understood by the scholars to be possibly minor shirk, that one should avoid. So, the problem with that understanding is that when the person said it, the Prophet ﷺ immediately corrected him. But we have all of these hadith where the Sahaba are saying, Allahu Rasuluhu A'lam, and never once is he correcting them. Because what they said is absolutely fine and is a statement of fact. If it was wrong, he would have corrected them. But he did not correct them. So it's a fine, it's a fine statement. So these are just four introductory points. We have hadith where the Sahaba, we call them athar, narrations where the Sahaba would use this statement, Allahu Rasulhu A'lam, between themselves after the passing of the Prophet. Or they would say it to one of the tabi'un of the second generation. Right? For instance, we have in the Sunan of Imam Al-Tirmidhi as well as Al-Bayhaqi عن عبد الواحد ابن سليم قال قدمت مكة فلقيت عطاء ابن أبي رباح فقلت له يا أبا محمد إن أهل البصر يقولون في القدر قال يا بني أتقرأ القرآن قلت نعم قال فقرأ الزخرف قال فقرأت حاميم والكتاب المبين إن جعلناه قرآنا عربيا لعلكم تعقلون وإنه في أم الكتاب لدينا لعلي حكيم فقال أتدري ما أم الكتاب قلت 
Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam. I won't translate the whole narration, but basically, uh, Abdul Wahid ibn Salim goes to Ata ibn Abi Rabah, who was one of the Tabi'un and was one of the great muftis of Mecca from the second generation. And he asks him about some theological controversies in Basra. And so they have this dialogue, and he asks him to read Surah Zukhruf where Allah Ta'ala mentions the matrix of the book or the source of the book, Ummul Kitab. And he asks him, do you know what that is? To which he said, Allahu wa Rasuluhu A'lam. That's the narration, right? So it's a part of a longer narration, but the shahid there is it was said, and this is in the second generation. We have a narration from uh, Amr bin Hamak, who was a Sahabi, where he talks about some of the fitna that arose uh, in that time period. And then he says, regarding the nature of the fitna and what people would do to him, he says, Allahu wa Rasuluhu A'lam. This is recorded by Tabarani. We have Zadan Abu Umar, who's one of the elder Tabi'un of the second generation, who took from Umar and Ali and others. In this narration recorded by uh, Imam Muhammad bin Nasr al-Marwazi, he says, An Zadan. Abi Umar قال قال علي يا أبا عمر أتدري على كم افترقت اليهود قال قلت الله ورسوله أعلم So he's asking him about the divisions among the Jewish community and he's relating to him the hadith that mentions the Jewish community dividing into 71 groups and then the Christians in the 72 and then the Muslims in the 73 but the shahid here is that when he asks when Imam Ali asks him that he says Allah and his messenger know best this is the second generation, right? Imam Ali Sahabi, of course. But this one was a tabi'i, uh, Zadan Abu Umar. And there's no reproach. Imam Ali, who's the most knowledgeable of the Sahaba, doesn't correct him, doesn't say, you can't say that anymore because the Prophet ﷺ passed away. Doesn't correct him. Uh, this goes on. You could just go and search the phrase, Allahu Rasulu Alam, from any of these search like Shamila or anything, you just find dozens of these. Just giving you a few. If you go to the ulama, you find the same thing. Uh, Al-Qadi Abu Bakr ibn Arabi al-Ma'arifiri, who died uh, 543 after Hijrah, he mentions, إِذَا تَوَقَّفَ فِيهِ مُتَشَرِّعٌ قُلْنَا لَهُ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَعْلَمْ وَقَدْ عَضَضَتْهُ التَّجْرِبَةُ وَصَدَقَتْهُ الْمُعَايَنَةُ So he's talking about a person who is asked about a legal question that they don't know. They say Allah and His Messenger know best. That's it. Ibn al-Jawzi, rahimahullah, he mentions fi kashf al-mushkiri min hadith sahihain wa yakunu taqsis. It's a longer narration about tafsir uh, or the hadith regarding Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam, and he talks about this, the meaning of it. And he says, وَهَذَا وَنِحْتُمِنَا فَالْأَوَّلُ أَوْلَى لِكَوْنِهِ حَقِيقًا وَاللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَعْلَمُ So he uses the same phrase in offering a commentary on the meaning of a hadith. Allah and his messenger know best. Ibn Usida, an Andalusian grammarian and scholar of Arabic, he says the same thing in his work Al-Mukhassas. He says, وَعَلَى الْمَذْهَبِ دُعِيَ عَلِي ابن أبي طالب صلوات الله عليه بأبي تراب وذلك لأن النبي صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم رآه راقدا في التراب فناداه يا أبا تراب وقد ذهب قوم إلى أنه كني أبا تراب على المعنى الأول والله ورسوله أعلم. He talks about why Imam Ali received the kunya Abu Turab. 
and he explains two different interpretations for why that is. And he says, Allah and his messenger know best. Ibn Khaldun does the same thing. And it's not even about fiqh, not about tafsir. It's about geography. So in his muqaddimah, he says, uh, talking about this one region, وَتَبْقَى فِي أَسْفَرِ ذَلِكَ الْجَانِبِ قِطْعَ مِنْ بِلَادُ الصِّينِ فِيهَا مَدِينَةُ شَيْغُونَ ثُمَّ تَتَصِلُ بِلَادُ الصِّينِ الْجُزْءَ الْعَاشِرِ كُلِّهِ إِلَى الْبَحْرِ الْمُحِيطِ وَاللَّهُ رَسُولُهُ أَعْلَمُ He's talking about some region in the Far East and he says, defining its limits and how far it goes. Then he says, Allah and his messenger know best. This was mutadawil. It was very common in usage among the ulama at that time. Now, you have even more explicit statements of the ulama who don't just use it themselves, but they say you, you should use it. We have, for instance, Imam al-Dhahabi, rahimahullah, the great Hafiz and Hadith scholar, he says, في كتاب العلو من العلم أن تقول لما لا تعلم الله ورسوله أعلم He says, it is from knowledge that you say about something you don't know, Allah and His Messenger know best. He's recommending you say it. You go to I'anat al-Talibin of al-Imam al-Dhamyati, al-Shafi'i, a Shafi'i text, he says, he says, it is actually a sunnah, because the Sahaba did it. A sunnah, that when you're asked about something you don't know, to say Allah and His Messenger know best. So this is a Shafi'i text. And this was also related by Al-Imam Ibn Hajar Al-Haytami Al-Makki Al-Shafi'i, who was one of the late muhaqqiqun of the madhab who took that quote and mentioned it in his work and supported it, making it one of the, the, the mu'tamad in the school, that one can say that. And not only can, but is even encouraged to say that, because he mentions it as being from the sunnah, based on the practice of the sahaba who did so. Uh, and lastly, we have uh, one of my favorites, uh, Al-Imam Ibn Allan al-Siddiqi, and you hear that name sometimes uh, uh, after Isha. Because in our reading of Riyadh al-Sadiqin, I often refer back to what he says because he has a commentary on Riyadh al-Sadiqin. And in his commentary on Riyadh al-Sadiqin, Dalil al-Fadiqin, he says, قُلْتُ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَعْلَمْ فِيهِ مَا كَانَ عَلَيْهِ الصَّحَابَةِ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ مِنْ حُسْنِ الْأَدَبِ مَعَهُ يُرَدُّ الْعِلْمِ uh, uh, so he's commenting on a hadith where Sahaba said that. And he says, uh, this shows you the good adab that the Sahaba had with the Prophet and that it is fitting that when someone is asked about something they don't know, to reply in the same way by saying, Allah and His Messenger know best. Now earlier, we mentioned that uh, a lot of the questions to which the Sahaba would say Allahu wa Rasuluhu A'lam were questions regarding matters of Sharia, matters of law, right? But when you go into the Hadith narrations, you find that they're even saying it for matters that don't pertain to Ahkam, but actually pertain to matters of the heart as well. So we have, for instance, in Sahih al-Bukhari, in the very long hadith of Ka'b ibn Malik. We read it here some years back. It took us a couple of days. It was, it's that long. In the long hadith of Ka'b ibn Malik, عنه, the story about when he 
had the means to go to the battle of Tabuk, but he kept procrastinating until they all left. And then he was among those who were boycotted for 40 plus days. In that long narration about his tawbah, it, he says, قُلْتُ يَا أَبَا قَتَادَ أُنْشِدُكَ بِاللَّهِ هَلْ تَعْلَمُنِي أُحِبُّ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهِ فَسَكَتَ فَعُدْتُ لَهُ فَنَشَدْتُهُ فَسَكَتَ فَعُدْتُ لَهُ فَنَشَدْتُهُ فَقَالَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَعْلَمُ so he says, he goes to Abu Qatada saying, you know, I ask you by Allah, don't you know that I love Allah and His Messenger? Don't you know that I love Allah and His Messenger? And he doesn't ask me, he doesn't answer. And I keep asking him until finally he says, Allah and His Messenger know best. That's about something of the heart, right? In Bukhari, we also have a hadith from Utban bin Madik concerning Madik ibn Dakhshan. So Utban says, ذَلِكَ مُنَافِقُ لَا يُحِبُّ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ قَالَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَآلِهِ وَسَلَّمْ لَا تَقُلْ ذَلِكَ أَلَا تَرَاهُ قَالَ لَا إِلَهَ إِنَّ اللَّهِ يُرِيدُ بِذَلِكَ وَجْهَ اللَّهِ قَالَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَعْلَمُ So Utban bin Malik said to uh, Malik bin Dakhshan, this guy is a hypocrite. And the Prophet صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم said, don't say that. Don't you know? that he loves Allah and his messenger, uh, and he says, La ilaha illallah. And then Utban bin Madik says, Allah and his messenger know best. You know, if he's really sincere about that. So that again, they're referring that knowledge to the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In Imam al-Tabarani's Al-Mu'jam al-Awsat, we have another narration. Qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam, atadaruna ma qala hadha al-jamal. He says, he asked the companions, do you know what that camel said? Camel. What do you think they said in answer to that question? Allahu wa a'lam. Allah and his messenger know best what the camel said. And to this the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, in qalu, Allahu wa rasuluhu a'lam, qala, hadha jamalun ja'ani yasta'idhuni ala sayyidi. This camel came to me seeking my protection from its owner, because the owner was overworking it and hurting it, right? So that doesn't concern ahkam, that concerns you know, matters that are even beyond the ordinary realm of human comprehension, you know, that understanding the language of animals or the emotions of people, the sincerity in their hearts, they would say, Allah and His Messenger know best. And to top all of this off, we find this meaning established in the Qur'an too. In the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَإِن تَنَازَعْتُمْ فِي شَيْءٍ فَرُدُّوهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَإِلَى الرَّسُولِ If you are in conflict about any matter, if you dispute about any matter, what should you do? You refer it back to Allah and His Messenger. Now in the tafsir, of Imam al-Baghawi and Ibn Atiyah and al-Nahas, all three of these mufassirun say the exact same thing about this verse. All three of them say the meaning of the verse, A, qulu, this, this verse means you should say, Allahu wa rasuluhu a'lam. Allah and His Messenger know best. That's why we refer matters back to Allah and His Messenger. So that's the answer to the question, inshaAllah. And uh, as we always say, 
Allahu wa Rasuluhu a'lam. So it's not shirk in any way whatsoever. It is a sunnah, in fact, as we've cited from these scholars and from these narrations. Of course not. Of course not. Of course not. Right. And, and see, there's theological problems with that, even that statement, because it presumes that the knowledge of Allah Ta'ala has some kind of limit, right? There's a problem there. Now, the ulama have researched this in great detail. And whatever knowledge Allah Ta'ala has given the Prophet it is exactly that. It is given. His knowledge is not with istiqlal, you know, it's not thati, it's not intrinsic and independent of Allah, it's whatever Allah gives him. So if Allah gives him knowledge more than anyone else, that's what Allah gave him. No one says that the knowledge of the Prophet uh, equals the knowledge of Allah, right? The knowledge of Allah Ta'ala doesn't have a limit. It doesn't have, there's no process of thinking, of inferences, of drawing conclusions, it's not daruri and nadari, it's not all of these things. Whereas for the Prophet ﷺ, his knowledge is received, is given to him by his Lord. Yeah. So it's all from Allah Ta'ala, it's all ilahiya. Alright, so the, the last question is, uh, Salam, respected Imam, there's a controversy among moms these days. Uh oh. There's a controversy among moms these days about multiple ear piercings. Some of my friends have done so many courses with different institutes. They say that having more than one ear piercing is strongly disliked. I have already let my daughter have two ear piercings. While I didn't know that it's makru, as some people are saying, I know after a year or two, she'll ask for the third one, and then a fourth one. I want to know the ruling about it before I say yes or no to her in the, in the future. If it's not disliked, then I shouldn't argue with her and make following Islam difficult for her. Jazakallahu khairan. So, this question doesn't have anywhere near the same level of detail as the previous one. This is actually fairly simple. Now, there's two things prohibited in Islam uh, concerning these matters. The first one is what we call muthla. Now, muthla is mutilation of the body, right? It is prohibited in Islam for a person to either mutilate themselves or mutilate someone else, even if that person is deceased. So muthla is to mutilate the body. Think about the kinds of mutilations you see in society today that are done in the name of fashion. You ever see those guys with the huge holes that stretch out and they have, they call them gauges, I guess? Yeah, that's mutilation. The piercings all over the face and the nose and the eyebrows and the head and they, they put fake horn. That's mutilation, right? That is mutilation. That is prohibited. That is haram. The second thing that is also haram is imitating the specific uh, mannerisms, uh, dress, attire, adornment of usaq, 
of people who are morally degenerate, meaning things are specific to them. There are corrupt people who wear blue jeans. That doesn't mean you can't wear blue jeans, because everyone wears them. We're talking about things that are done specifically by a certain subcategory of people associated with degenerate, immoral behavior. Right? So those two things are prohibited. So now going to the question of the multiple ear piercings, are earrings considered a form of mutla, a form of mutilation? No. I mean, basic earrings, one or two or three or whatever, that in itself is not mutilation. If you get the big ones and all the other stuff, yes, that's mutilation. That would be prohibited. But having a few is not necessarily, it's not mutilation. So that would be allowed for women. Now, we have to go back to the concept of urf, of, of the custom of the people. This is an issue that people get confused about. Because the urf of a people, their custom uh, doesn't automatically make things halal. Right? There are guidelines. You can't just say, well, it's the custom of my people, therefore I do it. Right? The urf has guidelines. And the urf that can be followed is the urf of people that are more or less balanced and what they do is recognized as normal by the majority of people and it's seen as acceptable by generally upright people. Right? It's not associated exclusively with people of moral degeneracy. This is generally accepted. If it's in that orf, then that would be fine, right? So if a person, a girl, uh, wants to get multiple earrings, and that is generally accepted, and it's not associated with fusaq and moral degenerates, meaning other ordinary people who aren't associated with that stuff have them, uh, women, girls, that would be fine. Does that mean two? Does that mean three, four, five? Like, what is the limit? Of course, there's no nas that says it has to be four or it can only be three. There's no text that says it has to be a specific number. You have to go by the general orf of the people. And as long as having three or four and it's done in a way that's uh, not associated with the people of outright fisk, I mean, it's not exclusive to them, that should be fine, inshallah ta'ala. And it wouldn't be makruh. And for those who say that it's makruh, right, they need to provide the evidence. Right? They need to provide the evidence for the karaha because al-asl fil ashari baha. The default is that it's permissible as long as it's not venturing into the territory of, of mutla. So the burden of proof is really on them as long as the person is doing something that is not associated specifically with a group of moral degenerates. So the kind of stuff that you see, you know, the, the crazy piercings everywhere, that is not associated with ordinary day-to-day -day people. That's associated with people who live a certain lifestyle that is uh, degenerate, right? doesn't mean they're all degenerate, but it means that's the general atmosphere, that's the subculture associated with those things. So there should be no issue, inshallah ta'ala, if it's done... Uh, in a tasteful way, but this is of course for for girls, for women, and if the parents are not good, uh, happy with it, and they don't want it, then the parents have the right to say no. That's also something to consider. If you're not comfortable with it and you don't want it, you can say no, and 
however your children respond, that's between you and them, but you have the right to determine whether you want them to do that or not. But Islamically speaking, inshallah, it's okay if it's tasteful, three or four like that, no problem, inshallah. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'la. Alhamdulillah.